Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. As some of you know, I've spent, I guess, the past 20 years or so writing and thinking about the tech industry and innovation and its impact on society. And we're at a point in time where it feels like we're hitting a real inflection point. Uh, obviously, the past few decades have shown us explosive society-changing and life-changing innovations. And throughout that period, there have always been people who have fallen into one of two camps, I think. There are the sort of techno-optimists who were super supportive of, of the technology and believe that all of this innovation was amazing and powerful. Uh, and then there were the techno-pessimists who feared the downsides and worried that we'd gone too far in some way. I think I've been pretty firmly camped in the optimist category for most of my life, and I expect that I'll pretty much remain there. <laughs> uh, however, over the past couple of years, I think there's been more and more happening that has at least at times challenged my thinking on some of this. There have been a few too many cases where it's quite obvious that the forward progress of innovation has also resulted in some pretty serious negative consequences. And there are more and more concerns that those negative consequences are only likely to get more serious in the future. Now, I've always recognized that innovation certainly has its pluses and minuses, but I'll admit that at times I've been perhaps a little too dismissive of the downsides. I still believe that the benefits outweigh those downsides, but I think as an industry, the, the tech world needs to be at least a little more thoughtful about both the good and bad that the technology enables. Indeed, this was part of the inspiration that we had in, in setting up the Copia Institute, the think tank that's associated with TechTurt, to see if we could help with the uh, industry to explore these issues and to figure out ways to promote the good stuff while minimizing the bad stuff. And that's why I was so excited to read Tim O'Reilly's new book, which, assuming uh, this recording goes according to plan, uh, should be coming out today, the day that we're releasing the podcast, the book should be coming out too. The book is called WTF, an obvious play on the popular shortened term of what the fuck, but in this case actually stands for what's the future. Uh, the book does a great job living up to the, that top-line title, helping to create sort of a framework for understanding where things appear to be heading. But equally important is not just the framework for, for thinking through the future that Tim presents, but also the point that he makes in the second part of the book's title. It's not just what's the future, but also uh, called and why it's up to us. Indeed, uh, recognizing that it's up to us to maximize the benefits while minimizing the downsides rather than ignoring them is perhaps, to me at least, the most important element uh, of the book. Now, the book very much aligns with my thinking on these things while also helping me clarify my own thinking and challenging some of the assumptions that I've had as well. And that's why I'm thrilled to have Tim O'Reilly as a guest on the podcast. So, Tim, welcome. 
thanks so much for having me, and thanks for such an elegant uh, uh, framing. I, I, uh, it's delightful. I think we could just stop here. <laughs> well, I think maybe our listeners wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't like that as much. Um, so, so I mean, you know, the obvious sort of first question is: is what made you write this particular book? Well. I've it, it probably started for me in 2012, uh, at least by some measure. Another measure, it started when I, at the beginning of my career. But uh, 2012, I heard a talk by Nick Hanauer at, at TED University, which was their little thing where people who were in the audience could give you know give talks. And Nick, who was uh, the first non-family investor in Amazon, uh, later. Uh, funded a company called Aquanta, which sold to Microsoft for $6 billion, uh, gave a talk. And he, he basically said, I'm sick and tired of hearing that people like me create jobs. Hmm. Uh, you know, he said, I'm a, I'm a rich guy, but I'm not a job creator. There's only one, you know, thing that creates uh, you know, jobs, and that's customers. You know, and we have been screwing people in this country for so long that they're not going to be able to afford to be our customers anymore. Wow! You know, and, and I thought it was just a, it was a real wake up call. And Nick Nick sort of great on this. You know, he just kind of laid down this challenge. He said, "Look, you know, we've built this plutocratic society, and inequality is bad for people like me and hmm. people like you." You know, because ultimately, you know, the economy is this circular system. And, of course, we see this today. You know, if you talk to any economist, they say the problem uh, is lack of demand. Mm. Why? Because ordinary people don't have enough money. You know, we've been squeezing them for so long. And so, you know, uh, that was what really kind of got me thinking about it. And. Uh, I, I, it just sort of built, and I, I, I sort of felt like we're, we're kind of heading towards this, you know, pitchfork moment, you know, <laughs> uh, so to speak, you know, where, you know, and I've always sort of had this, you know, perspective, you know, it's like, you know, couldn't the those aristocrats of the French Revolution see this coming? Right. You know, so I started a, uh, and then all of these these questions of jobs and the economy started to come to a head with the on-demand economy, and people looking at Uber and Lyft, uh, and uh, and task rabbit and kind of going well if this is the job oh, these are the jobs of the future uh is this you know a bad template you know and i started to think well i should do something about this so i, I organized an event called the next economy summit uh, so i started in 2014 mm -hmm. and we ran it in 2015 2016 we have we've kind of turned it into an unconference this year um uh, uh uh, it, it wasn't super economic because I wanted to invite in all these people who couldn't afford to pay. <laughs> you know? And then you kind of, how do you, you kind of balance the, the uh, because the people who are actually inventing this future, maybe labor leaders, uh, you know, I mean, bottom up labor leaders, sure. I'm not talking about the, you know, from the big labor companies, but people like, you know, Michelle uh, and, and uh, Jess Kutch and Michelle, what's Michelle's last name from, from coworker.org, uh, oh, yeah. which is trying to enable, you know, workers to find voice on Facebook. You know, it's like these cool people who are trying to figure out this from all different angles. And so I thought part of what I do is bring people together to kind of think about the future. And so then as I uh, was doing that, um, I, 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 you know, I, uh, you know, I, I, I recognized, you know, I've been a publisher for years, but of, of books that people 
uh, you know, have to have, you know, <laughs> uh, you know at least, you know, in the old days. Now it's less necessary to have a book. And my business has migrated away from publishing. It's still part of what we do, but not all of what we do. Right. But uh, the uh, I realized, you know, just trying to get media for some of these ideas that, you know, it I was just hard getting on the radio and so on. And I, I heard there was somebody who'd, who'd done another book, uh, a book about Uber called The Raw Deal, mm-hmm. which I thought did not actually make the right points. And I was having trouble getting on, you know, I was actually on Michael Krasny. I did, did eventually to talk about it. But, you know, it was just like, I realized a book is still kind of a, you know, a kind of a, a, a you know, a, a an entry to a to a level of discussion with people who actually have influence on a lot of the decisions that I wanted to make. So I, I thought, well, I should I should write a book, and then I decided that I really, you know, as I as I wrote it, I realized that in a lot of ways, I could write this sort of single pointed, sort of economic, you know, sort of futurist, you know, book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's a lot of these, you know, this is what's happening and they're kind of the books of the moment. And I thought, no, I really want to write a business book that teaches people, uh, about how to think about the future. And that was actually my, uh, you know, original subtitle was, uh, you know, WTF, what's the future and how to think about it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> And it was my wife Jen, uh, who who actually has a, a, who started Code for America. Jen Palka, uh, she has a, bump, a a sticker that she has for laptops that, that's called uh, "No one is coming. It's up to us." Right. <laughs> and uh, she said to me, "You know, no, the, the subtitle ought to be, you know, what's the future and why it's up to us." Which so I, I've been forever grateful to her for that, as well as everything else she does. Uh, uh, but the. Uh, the, the kind of the, the, what I was trying to get to was this sense of giving entrepreneurs and technologists and policymakers and and you know ordinary people a set of tools for thinking about the future. Like, what do we learn from you know what? And then you know, so it was sort of like, okay, I want to write a business book. And then I I I, uh, I actually I end up signing up with with Harper Business, and it turned out that that. Uh, my publisher was also the publisher for uh, uh, Ben Horowitz's The Hard Thing About Hard mm-hmm. Things. Sure. And I thought, oh, he did a really interesting job of writing a memoir. It was a business book that was also a memoir. You right. know, it's like he told stories of LoudCloud, a company that people didn't really necessarily even care about anymore. But it was sort of through telling his own story, he gave these business life to these business lessons. And so I ended up, in, in a sense, you know, writing three books in one, which is this sort of economic call to action. How do we think differently about the economy mm-hmm. you know, and the role of technology in it? Uh, but framed uh, also with well, and here are a lot of practical lessons for entrepreneurs uh, in in you know how to understand what you know the implications of their business model, uh, how to uh, you know understand uh, different kinds of trends, how to actually reframe the world in ways so that you can see it more deeply. Right, and and that of course is a lot of what I've done in my career, which is where it started to intersect with with the memoir part because I, you know, ended up telling stories of the ways that I've intersected with the tech industry over the last 35 years uh, in, in ways that have shaped it 
by telling by storytelling right you know, saying hey we're missing this thing that we should uh, uh, have been paying attention to in some sense this is the book is an exercise in the same kind of thinking that I did when I said to the free software advocates hey why are you leaving the internet out of the narrative? Right. You know, it's the most successful piece of free software out there. It's even more successful than Linux. We have to have a narrative that includes it. And then going on and saying, "Hey, you know, um, you know, if you keep thinking about that, you realize that websites are software, and it's, it's completely changing the nature of software. And the internet is becoming an operating system. So again, thinking more deeply about the future and where it was taking." You know, kind of led me to, you know, this idea that collective intelligence and big data were going to be the next source of competitive advantage. You know, so, um, you know, I, you know, I kind of tell some of the stories, but then it's like, okay, and then you know, here's how you know the conversations with Amazon about what it meant to be platforms and and what did Amazon do with that, you know, and and right. how it kind of took that so much. Further. So I kind of tell. My personal stories of intersecting with some of the big movements in, in, the, in the industry, but then also, what do we learn from them? What do we learn from the way that Google search quality works or Facebook in its attempts to struggle with fake news? And what does that tell us, for example, about our financial markets? Because that's something that I, I try to do a lot. It's like I go, well, you know, it's really easy to bang on Facebook about fake news and, you know, why, why aren't they doing a better job? And then you go, well, well actually... You know, our financial markets also are, you know, algorithmic systems, believe mm -hmm. it or not. And I try to explain why that is and what role that plays in what's wrong with our economy. Right. Do, do you think um, – and this is something that I've been thinking a lot about recently, so so um, this may be my own sort of personal <laughs> issue. But do, do you think that, that sort of the entrepreneurs of today – recognize their their sort of place in the wider ecosystem um and, and do you think that's that's changing over time because at least to me it feels like you know i don't know it felt to me like 10 or 15 years ago that that the sort of internet entrepreneurs that that we saw and that i would talk to would sort of have a sense of kind of what they were really doing kind of what their wider impact was on the world and today even though they probably have a bigger impact to it, it often feels like they don't they don't recognize it or they don't even want to recognize it do you... uh, I, I think there's a big bifurcation in the internet startup world mm. you know there's you know there are people who very clearly are thinking about the implications they may not have you know i mean there's been a lot of criticism of mark zuckerberg recently for the, you know he lacks a sense of history and all the and the way that that teaches us about all the things that can go wrong and so on but come on mark wants to make a better world uh and he's focused on building a real business mm -hmm. um you know, Elon Musk, oh my gosh, you know, this guy is <laughs> sure. like, he's driven by idealism, uh, you know, and, you know, puts his own money, you know, to work. But there's a huge class of entrepreneurs who remind me too much of the Wall Street, quote, entrepreneurs <laughs> yeah. who brought us the, the, you know, the 2008 financial crisis. Their basic model is, can I sell this idea to a VC? Right. Can I get my next round of funding? And can we get to an exit? You know, and, and it's sort of like the financial gamesmanship. And I've watched this. You know, I am a VC, and I'm a you know I'm in some of these meetings, and I hear the the discussion and the way, you know, 
it gets framed, you know, that you, you know, that that we're really so much of what's being built are not real businesses. Yeah. You know, and this is why, you know, at, at my firm, you know, O'Reilly Alpha Tech Ventures, you know, Bryce Roberts has come up with this idea he calls NDVC, yeah. which is trying to develop a new kind of instrument to fund and provide funding and support to businesses that don't want to exit, that want right. to be around for a long time. You know, you and I, we both have businesses. We've been, I, I've been at it for 35 years. You've been at it for 20. You know, I mean, you know, you're not sitting there going, uh, you know, man, I want to, I want to, you know, build this thing and and flip it within right. a few years. You know, you know, you're kind of like, no, I'm doing this thing that matters, and it matters to me, it matters to the world, and I want to keep doing it. You know, yeah. business is is how you pay for doing this thing that you want to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting to see that. And it does feel like, I mean, I guess we do go through sort of waves, right? You know, when, when things get hot, right? I mean, so like during the, the original dot-com bubble, you sort of saw that same thing happen in kind of the 99 timeframe where suddenly, you know, and, and I, I have an MBA, so, so I'm not necessarily mocking MBAs, but, but, you know, you'd have all these MBAs suddenly show up and, and it was more focused on like, you know, how can we just get millions of dollars and cash out as quickly as possible? And and to some extent, it feels like you know we've, we've certainly entered a similar sort of phase. But but in this round, it it I don't know for some reason it worries me a little bit more. I mean, I think the last time you know th- those companies didn't necessarily get very far, whereas this time some of them seem to actually you know be be advancing and not necessarily in the in the best possible ways. Well, I think the the other issue that's really important to understand is that the world has also moved on. Yeah. You know, we, we the, the the you know the conditions, uh, you know, of the economy in the '90s, you know, when that bubble was going on, were not the conditions of today. Right. You know, wh- where you know, for all that we've seen economic recovery, it's very very uneven. Uh, you know, the, the the sort of the precarity, as they call it, of of so many, so much of the American people. You know that that you know an enormous percentage, whether it's fifty-five, sixty percent of of Americans, can't come up with five hundred dollars for an emergency. Right. And that should be terrifying. Yeah. Uh, you know, to to anyone in uh, who who's thinking about this, and and yet we have this set of happy, you know foolish you know rich people you know i kind of i guess i always think of of the eloy and uh you know hg wells Mm -hmm. uh the time machine you know it's like and and of course that it's not really like that because it's the eloy or eating the morlocks here (laughs) um but uh, the fact is, eventually, you know, uh, uh, that that that's just not a sustainable situation. Yeah, and, and, and history shows us that it's not sustainable. And and you know, I guess the thing is, it's also just not that much fun. <laughs> uh, I, right. I, I, I actually, in the book, I quote this wonderful, uh, you know, uh, uh, passage from De Tocqueville, which I came across. In the paper that uh, Joseph Stieglitz, the Nobel Prize-winning economist, mm-hmm. uh, he wrote he wrote a piece in the Atlantic, I think it was, uh, which is where he he's the one who coined the term the one percent, right? <laughs> you know, and uh, uh, but he ends up quoting this piece from De Tocqueville where he talks about self-interest properly regarded as the peculiar American genius, mm-hmm. and we have to rediscover that American genius that. 
building a better world is actually good business. Right. You know, extractive businesses end up failing. Right. You know, and, and, and we've kind of built, you know, our financial system has become an extractive, uh, you know, economy rather than a supportive, you know, trellis on which the real economy gets, gets to grow. Yeah. Yeah. This, it reminds me, we had uh, uh, a few months ago, we had um, James Allworth on the podcast. I don't know if you know James at all. Um, I've never met him. Uh, he, he's great. I think you would you would definitely like him and have a lot to talk about with him. But but you know, sort of the point of that podcast was a, an article he'd written on Medium, where he sort of talked about how you know, and, and he's you know he's he's super supportive of innovation and and um, you know and sort of the wonderful things that it brings. But he was you know the the point was he was worrying about that we seem to be prioritizing profits over you know as he put it sort of democracy or or society um and and pointing out that like you know innovation creates amazing businesses but we shouldn't you know profits alone should not be the the goal of of businesses right it should be to create a better world and you know if it's all just going to you know to the to a few small business owners then we're not actually succeeding in that and we sort of have to rethink almost the the metrics that we use to judge success yeah i totally agree with that and and you know the, the one of the problems and this kind of goes back to you know our our need to get better at drawing new maps of the world yeah yeah you know, rather than just sort of you know choosing from this multiple choice menu of <laughs> oh well you're, you you know you're for free enterprise or you're you know you're a you know a communist or you're right. for free enterprise or you're you know you're big government socialist whatever you know it's like no you know uh understanding this complex dynamic by which right. the commons feeds prosperity and allows businesses uh, to become more successful uh that uh you know, again, I, I you know, I, I, I like to reason from, from, you know, success stories. You yep. know, from, from, throughout my career, I, I, I kind of feel like I've always done the some version of of uh, the was it Nike, the Be Like Mike, you know, <laughs> ads. Right. Just like, okay, you know, here's how you be like Linus Torvalds. You know, right. Oh, here's how you be like Jeff Bezos. You know, here's how you be like Larry and Sergey. You know, and. Um, and and we you know right now it's like okay how do you be like Elon Musk right you know how do you be like Bezos as he's become you know uh, you know he he's actually continued to mature in the way he he actually creates value with his business right. uh, you know I kind of thought for many years that Jeff you know that the the path that Amazon would take was they would become dominant uh, you know and then become extractive. You right. know, as they as they built their, you know, became more and more which dominant. Is, which is a fairly typical pattern that we, we've seen historically among lots of companies, certainly. That's right. And and, and instead, he's continued to kind of up the ante. Yep. You know, uh, you know, they did, you know, like uh, I, I t tell the story of, you know, Amazon bringing all the robots into their warehouses. And then, you know, okay, add 45,000 robots over two and a half years in the same time period, add 250,000 people. Right. Why? Because they didn't say, wow, we can use these robots to get rid of half of the workers in our warehouses and do the same thing we were doing before. He said, no, we can do more. We can pack in more products for you know next day delivery. We right. can actually take a whole bunch of products and now make them available for same day delivery. Right. You know, and it's just like crazy, just upping the ante. And 
you know, you I talk to these entrepreneurs and they're like, wow, you know, we can get rid of 30% of call center workers with AI. Right. And I go, why would you want to do that? Why wouldn't you make them better? That's right. actually better business. Yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it reminds me, and we told this this story in, in sort of our, our description when we were putting together the Copia Institute was, was um, you know, almost an identical story from 100 years ago or so, which was um, – you know the the switch from from manual operators connecting phone calls to you know to to mechanical switches where you know at uh, you know in the the early days i, I think um there were something like 300,000 you know phone operators who would you know take your call you tell them where you wanted to call and they would literally you know plug a, a cable in and then it switched to mechanical switching and you know the the first thought would be well those 300,000 operators are going to be out of a job but of course that's not what what happened you know once you had you know automated switching it enabled all sorts of other things including like call centers or customer support lines that you could call or all different kinds of businesses that rely on the telephone and eventually as you you know do further automation i mean that's the Basically, the internet was enabled by that and all of the businesses that are then built on that and all of the jobs that are created from that. And all of these amazing things were enabled, even though, you know, the first look at it might be, well, you know, all these operators are going to lose their jobs. Yeah, totally. And, you know, there's actually a really uh, interesting body of work by an economist named James Besson. Uh, uh -huh, he's somebody yeah. you should have on, on, on the show. Uh you know, he, he had looked at uh, that same pattern with the introduction of, of ATMs. Yep. Uh, you know, everybody said, well, all the tellers are going to be out of work. But it turned out that, uh, you know, with ATMs, they could make smaller branches in more neighborhoods, and they end up, you know, hiring more tellers, yep. more people working in, in retail banking than there were before. Uh, but he also does this his book uh, called Learning by Doing, where he yeah. talks about, uh, you know, this whole process is this kind of weaving. He, he was an early publishing entrepreneur before he became an economics professor you know, yeah. in, in sort of newspaper publishing systems. And uh, he kind of tells a really interesting story about, and then he, he's a, in his economics work, he studied the, the mill workers in 1840s Lowell. And he kind of talks about the evolution of uh, you know, productive ecosystems because that's really what they are. You know, right. if you look at you know the development of the industrial revolution, you know, and you see the the productivity go up, it actually goes up thirty or forty years after the introduction of a new technology. Mm -hmm. And and you know, it's not actually you know that foreign to our own experience. You know, you, you kind of you look at at uh, you know the web introduced you know, Tim first website in 1989, right? You know right. And that that progress. Here we are. You know, we're we're heading for 30 years on, and it's only now that the web is is really you know. I mean, it's had an impact over the last 10, 15 years, but we're really just starting to discover all the possibilities. Yeah, and uh, you know, we're 10 years into the smartphone era, and we're uh, you know we're actually starting to understand you know what to do with it that you know again I, I look at something like you know uber and lyft as you know transformative applications enabled by the smartphone right you know they, they were you know um and, and, and you know we're, we're about to head into augmented reality and ai and and you know ubiquitous computing and the transformation of our economy is just accelerating in the same way that the you know industrial revolution it was one thing after another that became additive and combinatorial right and we're seeing the same thing with computing 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's true. And I remember, I mean, I, I sort of compare it back to in the sort of mid nineties, there were all these concerns and, and studies and people were complaining that, you know, with the introduction of the, of the, the personal computer, you know, about 10, 15 years earlier, you know, possibly 20, that there, there hadn't been, no one was seeing any sort of uptick in productivity. And of course, you know, the point was we hadn't quite figured out how to use them. You know, everyone sort of recognized that there were, that there were clearly some productivity gains, but it was, you know, the people who had figured out how to use them and plenty of people hadn't or hadn't, yes. hadn't deployed them properly. And then, you know, over time, people began to realize, like, obviously, computers, you know, help productivity in all sorts of ways. Yes. And I think we're going through the same thing with, you know, with the internet itself and, yeah. and the web, you know, in particular, and, and now with smartphones also, where we're just now on the cusp of really understanding. And so, like, there are these books and studies and, and recently that have been complaining about, you know, sort of decreases in productivity. And, and I, I'm kind of of the opinion, like, well, let's let's wait a, a little while and see what well, comes out of it. Well, it's also... It's also a matter of what we measure. Sure. Uh, I have a, I have a, a section point. in my book about something that uh, a guy named Steve Baer called the clothesline paradox. Mm -hmm. uh, this is something in, I read in, in uh, Stuart Brand's Coevolution Quarterly in the, in the uh, 70s. And this guy was basically talking about you know, alternative energy. And he said, you know, like, if you take your clothes and instead of putting them in your you know, dryer, you hang them on the clothesline, they don't. You know, it, it it doesn't get added onto the renewable energy. Legend. Right. It just disappears from our accounting. Yep. And I think about all the things that are like that in our economy. You know, yeah. it's like if if uh, uh, if people and you can look at all these interesting distortions. You think about, for example, uh, Comcast. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, how much money do they make because people want to use Facebook? Right. You know, if. Uh, if Comcast wants to provide cable service with traditional television, they actually pay, you know, Hollywood to have the movies, to have the TV shows, right? right? Yep. If if uh, if, but they don't pay Facebook. They yep. don't pay the people who are producing this content, which probably is driving, you know, a huge amount of value in their business. You know, because guess what? It's unmonetized, unmeasured, and and. I think the way that we have to look at productivity has to change. And I also think this also is how we have to think about, um, you know, jobs. Uh, you know, one of the key things we have to, to think about is how do we actually pay for the stuff that needs doing? Yeah. Because that's more, you know, the job, the job is just the wrong framing. You know, I think we need to talk more about work. Mm -hmm. You know, so you think about um, what are we going to need more of, and markets are supposed to be good at this, right? And if, and, and, but there are market failures, and, and and you know, it's interesting. There's so many different things yet to be figured out. You know, like where there's something that's really valuable that's really needed. What's keeping it from happening? This is what technologists or, or an entrepreneur is supposed to be good at. So here's one for you. We already know that uh, you know human caring uh, is extremely valuable. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you're a rich person, uh, you uh, have a small class size. You know, mm -hmm. in your education. You know, so you know, uh, you you know, you pay more for your private school so that you can get 
personal human attention. Uh, you uh, you probably you know you may have concierge medicine. You know mm-hmm. if you're if you're wealthy enough. You know you have you know long before there was Uber, you had your private driver. Yeah. Know, right? <laughs> and um, and so here's this technology that's going to take away a whole bunch of things that humans have been doing that are mechanistic. Mm-hmm. And we already know what rich people value, right? So make the rest of us richer. Right. I, that's, I'm using that metaphorically yep, because yep. I'm already quite well off. Um, but and, – and, and what will we do? We'll do the same thing as other you know, rich people do, which is pay more for caring. Right. Right, you know, so this it's already happening. You again, you can see it. You know, it's like people have personal trainers. You know, this is one of the fastest growing, you know, job categories. Uh, you know, uh, you know, if you're in Silicon Valley, you see all these dinners and they're catered by private chefs. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like crazy that that you know, we think there will be no jobs. the The real problem is that the work. Uh, and this is really not even getting on to important work. This is just the indulgences of 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 of, of a rich society. You know? mm-hmm. But uh, rich people pay for creativity. You know, like they they go, wow, you know, this, you know, this uh, single origin, you know, particular roaster of, of coffee, you know, is <laughs> is worth paying three times as much for right. as as a, you know even a Starbucks, you know, which is in turn worth three times as much as the coffee you get at the local diner, right? You yep. know, so we see this, you know. So, so the question is, if we made all of us richer, right? Mm-hmm. You know, by by dis- properly distributing the fruits of the productivity that, that our latest generation of machines could give us, you know, rather than hoarding it to a small number of people, we'd see this much, uh, uh, you know. Fuller circular economy, just yeah. like we saw with the industrial revolution, where more people were buying more things from each other, uh, where there were, you know, uh, this is sort of wonderful elaboration. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, I always think of, of this passage of Wallace Stevens, and it applies to the economy too. You know, uh, he, said, he said, One might have thought of sight, but who could think of what it sees for all the ill it sees? <laughs> that one sees and hears and feels. Who could have imagined so many selves, so many sensuous worlds, as if as if the air was swarming with the metaphysical changes that occurred, uh, merely living where, as and where we live, and and I feel like that's how an economy works. You know, yeah. it's like incredible elaboration on the basics that we have, and if we have enough sort of nutrients from the commons if we have enough circulation of the wealth that's produced you know we will have jobs right and, and, but of course there's another piece which is is you know you know and again I, I kind of have three reasons in my book why we we don't ever have to run out of jobs and and that's one of them caring and creativity uh, but the third one is 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 actually a variation on Larry Summers' uh, refutation of the of the uh, uh, efficient market mm-hmm. hypothesis. I've, you've heard that where Larry said uh, said uh, there are idiots. Look around, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I go, you know, we're going to be out of work. I mean, out of jobs. There is lots of work to do. Look around. Right, right. You know, we have, you know, um, you know, eighty million refugees. Already, with more on the way, who are going to need to be housed, you know, right. and, and, and you know that's an opportunity to build a better world, solve a problem, uh, you know, 
you know, so like I, I go to people who are saying, well, you know, like Google wants to build, you know, new cities. I go, yeah, we actually need them. There, you know, it's like there's people who are going to be in refugee camps for 20, 30 years. You know, why don't you make a city for them? Right. Figure out how to make because again, if you did that and you made a real economy there, that's a, an entrepreneurial opportunity. Yeah. Way better than well, we'll make a cool city for techies. You know, they've tried that. They built one in you know Mazdar and you know the Emirates, and it's like no, you know, these are ghost towns. You know, yeah. build where the people are. Give you know, like same thing with this you know startup bodega. I mean, right. it's a little bit got a little bit of a bad rap because it's really just vending machines for for dorms and stuff. Right, like right. You know, but the the narrative that came out about it, which was we're going to replace the corner store, and I, and I go, no, you know, uh, my wife Jen wrote three or four years ago a piece uh, called Bodega 2.0, which is <laughs> what the real Bodega 2.0 would be, which is how would we build the infrastructure uh, to make the corner store uh, have cheaper prices because they have the same buying power that a, a big chain has. Right. How give them the kind of market intelligence about what sells so that they could match their product to demand. How could we have every, you know, uh, you know, little corner bodega be the kind of cornucopia that a place like Byright is? Right. <laughs> yeah. No, that's interesting. I, I, I sometimes wonder, and this is another thing that I've sort of been thinking about a lot recently, if, you know, you sort of mentioned kind of the metrics issue and the sort of problems with the, the metrics that we have. And, and, you know, I think we always have issues where, you know, whenever there's a number, we sort of, we tend to optimize for that number. And there's a lot of stuff that that can't be quantified in, in numbers. And then so th those things get lost. But I kind of wonder if, if as a related issue, the fact that, that we sort of, and I understand why this happens, but the fact that we judge everything in terms of, of dollars, you know, when we're looking at, at markets, um, you know, the, the cost and benefit analysis will put, will put them in dollar terms specifically. And that makes people think that, that there's only sort of cost and value when yeah. there's an actual exchange of, of money. And, and yet so much of what we see, and, you know, you talked about this with the, the sort of, you know, hanging your laundry to, to dry and that it applies to so many other spaces, especially in a digital world where there's a lot of stuff that happens for free with no monetary exchange. We're, we're missing out on counting all that value just because we, we always try and judge it in, in dollar value. Well, I mean, uh, you know, dollars uh, or, you know, money in, in general is a really useful thing because sure. it allows you to denominate very, very different goods. Yep. Uh, and, and, and I think, you know, whether it's, you know, I remember Cory Doctorow's first science fiction novel, Down yep. Out in the Magic Kingdom, <laughs> had this fabulous idea of a reputation currency. Yep. Uh, it, he called it woofy. Now it's called the Facebook like, <laughs> right, um, right. you know, and, you know, we actually see, you know, that there are, there is convertibility between, you know, social media cred and, um, um, uh, you know, and, and actually the, the financial economy, yep. uh, which is really interesting. I'm actually, we're actually an investor in a company called Forecard, okay. uh, which is a social media agency. And what's really interesting about them is that James Nord, the founder, said to me, he said, look, you know, uh, for certain kinds of, um, you know, high status brands, uh, you know, it's, it's really still just barter. You know, it's like, here, let me show you. He's a photographer. He's how he got started. You know, uh, it was on Tumblr, I think, originally, and then Instagram. Uh, and he said, yeah. 
let me show you. Here, here, here are the cars I drove on my last vacation. And he's showing, you know, these you know, two, uh, I think they were Porsche sports cars, right? Mm-hmm. You know, with his family, you know, around them in Italy or something like that. Right. And, and uh, he said, but, you know, if, you know, you're, you know, Old Navy, you pay. <laughs> you <know>? Right. <laughs> You know, and, and you know, because he basically built this agency where he, he'll aggregate audiences, you know, for for brands, mm-hmm. and and it's sort of really interesting. So you see, you know, that that you know, Corey's Woofy is uh, uh, is is actually exists and is a convertible currency, uh, and, and there's a lot happening in social media that way, and and people are are converting it in different ways. You know, Patreon is a way of converting. Sure. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it to currency. Kickstarter is a way of converting it to, to, to currency. You know, and you see people like, uh, you know, the wonderful Brandon Stanton of Humans of New York, who basically says, no, I don't want to convert it with advertising into currency. But he uses his, you know, 23 million followers to raise money for charity for people that he meets in his work of his way his practice. I mean, there's all this wonderful, you know, these wonderful signs of this next economy. Uh, that's emerging under our noses. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 definitely it's it's interesting. I just wonder if you know because of the way that we sort of you know we seem to only count it when it when it hits that point where it where it where it is converted, and and I wonder how much we miss when we yeah um, you know when we're not looking at you know or or whether or if we're not creating metrics that that actually. Um, sort of accurately take some of those things into account, even when they're not when when they yeah. when they don't match up with the the financial world. Absolutely, I mean, you know, the good life is not right measured in dollars. I yeah. mean, it, basically, you get a certain number. It takes a certain amount of money. Uh, you know, I mean, you, it certainly. You know, if anybody who's, who's uh, experienced it, or if you haven't experienced it, just go read Barbara Ehrenreich's Nickel and Dimed in America. Yep. America, and you'll kind of get a sense of, you know, this is what she wrote that what twenty five years ago, yeah, or whatever. You know, that was an early look at what more and more people are experiencing of, you know, not being able to get by. And I tell you, you want the, you know, you 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 want some money then, you know. Uh, so I don't want to I don't want to too idealize this sort of sure techno utopian future that's possible. Although I will say it, it is, it, it is amazing to see it. It, that is happening. Uh, you know, Corey's new book, Walk Away, yeah. uh, is also it is sort of about it's sort of like the steps that led up to people, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, creating that you know reputation economy of the future. And it's so fascinating because after I read the book, I started running into walkaways. <laughs> you know, I was on this one trip. Uh, Jen and I had gone to visit Code for Tulsa, the the, uh-huh. the Code for affiliate in Tulsa where her, her family she has family there and we met with them and we met this woman and she was like yeah I was a real estate agent and then I started you know volunteering at a homeless shelter I mean not a homeless shelter a food bank and I realized oh my god there's all these problems with food and it's just you know it's just so much more interesting and so she basically she's a walk away she basically what she do now she has a a nonprofit, which she gets some funding for, but mostly it's done with smoke and mirrors. She has a horse-drawn mobile 
uh, grocery store huh. that she takes around to food deserts, you know, battered women's shelters, old folks' homes. She has an organic farm where with her partner where she raises a lot of produce. But for other kinds of things, she's like, well, we can't afford – we're not big enough yet to buy in bulk, you know, from the distributors. So we just basically track all the sales at the big box stores and, you know, buy all the staples as cheaply as possible and then resell them at cost. Right. <laughs> And it's like, oh my God! She and I say, well, well, what do you live on? And she says, well, you know, we have a farm, and my husband gets paid, <laughs> or my partner, I don't know if they're married. Right. And I say, well, yeah. Well, who, who, where does he work? Well, he we work together. Yeah. So basically, it's two of them working for one salary. Right. they made. They're basically kind of opting out. You know, this is like Burning Man for good. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, all the techies do Burning Man as a vacation. You know, once a year, and here's a woman who's kind of opted into that as you know hey i'm doing this amazing and it's just like if that were burning man the the, the horse-drawn mobile grocery store everybody go oh what a cool project right, you know, right. She's doing it in tulsa and she's doing it for real yeah yeah no that's 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 fascinating um and, and i i'm i could keep talking about this forever and i'm sure you could too but but i know that that, that we both have other things we we have to get to today um but uh it's really really interesting discussion and 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 i'm sure that our listeners found it interesting too and if you want more of it you should definitely pick up uh tim's book wtf uh what's the future um and uh, oh and why it's up to us because that's important too <laughs> um Tim, thanks so much for joining us. This was this was this was really great, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm sure you'll be having plenty more discussions like this as everyone starts reading through the book and and uh, and thinking about these things also. Uh, thanks so much, and Mike, thank you for all that you do. Uh, you know, I know that your listeners uh, are aware of it, uh, but if if you get new listeners because of this podcast, I I hope they pay attention. You know, Mike <laughs> is a remarkable activist uh, for a better world, engaging with all of the thorny policy problems that have been raised by technology, and is a champion uh, that is making your world better. Uh, and you may not know it but you've probably benefited many times from the work that he does. <laughs> wow, thank you. That was, uh, 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 I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> uh, thank you, that's very, very kind of you to say uh, and, and very much appreciated. Um, all right, and thanks to everyone who's been listening and uh, we'll be back next week with another podcast. Someone will get hurt to grab a shovel and dig